I just read to you a description of the tabernacle from Exodus 26, and much of it likely went over your head as much of it goes over mine. The more you read it, the more it makes sense. The more you slow down and even perhaps try to sketch it out, the more it makes sense. The more you read books by other people who are better at this sort of thing, and they explain to you what's up, the more it makes sense. But we see here a description of the whole tabernacle. And we've been studying the tabernacle furniture, starting with the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the most holy place, and then looking at the table and the lampstand, which are outside the most holy place in what we might just call the holy place. And we've seen over the last few Sunday nights that the furniture of the holy place and the most holy place and the ceremonies associated with them are richly laden with symbolism. The table of the bread, of the presence in the holy place symbolizes God's invitation to His people to eat with Him in His presence, which is signified by the lampstand. And there's correspondence here to the book of Revelation where God's people eat with Him in a place where He Himself is the light and where there is no night. As the lampstand was burning 24-7, God's people would eat with God in a place where there is no night. But without the furniture and the ceremonies of the most holy place, the table fellowship with God that happens in the holy place would not be possible. For God's law condemns the ancient Israelites as sinners. The stone tablets representing God's unyielding, unchanging demands, truly written in stone, which can't be flexed or broken or overlooked. And these are contained in the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the most holy place. But the Ark of the Covenant has a mercy seat on the top, on its cover, where the blood of a substitute may be poured, so that the Israelites may figuratively enter God's presence through the representation of the high priest, having had their sin already justly punished in another, the blood of a substitute. The one goat on the Day of Atonement bears the wrath of God against sin. It dies in the place of the people, and the other carries their defilement away outside the camp, so that the high priest who comes into God's presence in the most holy place and remember, the names of the Israelites were written on his clothing. So all of God's people in him, coming in with him, may be considered clean. It is only because, then, of the ceremonies pertaining to the mercy seat, that the law is justly answered. And that God's people may have access into his holy presence without dying for their sin. So because of the law and gospel transactions in the most holy place, the table fellowship in the holy place is possible. God can justly invite His people to eat with Him and drink with Him in a place where He Himself is the light and there is no night because the law has been justly satisfied by the transaction at the mercy seat. The ceremonies of the Day of Atonement, of course, are representative of and prefigure the work of Christ in bearing God's wrath 
wrath on our behalf and carrying away our sins from us so that we could be considered clean and could be invited to eat and drink with God in a place where He Himself is the light and where there is no night. This is all review, by the way. I'm not saying anything yet tonight that I haven't already said in the previous few weeks. If you haven't heard this before, go listen to the last three or maybe four sermons from our Old Covenant series, which are all available online. Those of you who have heard this already will get the most out of tonight's sermon as I'll be developing and expanding upon these things and referring to them tonight with the assumption that they're already sufficiently understood. However, even those of you who have heard, I'm reviewing for your sake too, not just for those who haven't heard, I'm reviewing for your sake too, because I want these things to be fresh in your mind as we study again tonight. So let's continue here for a few more minutes to review what we've already covered. I'm going to go over some of the ground I just did, but in a little bit more detail. The tabernacle was a rectangular structure, the door of which opened to the east. And so one travels westward into the tabernacle. He comes first into the outer court, and we're going to come to that over the next few weeks. But if someone was to continue westward through the outer court, he would enter the holy place where there is a table on the right-hand side with bread on it and a lamp on the left-hand side which never goes out and gives light 24-7 to the table. Then progressing westward still, he would enter the most holy place in which is the Ark of the Covenant which has the Ten Commandments in it and two angels on the cover, each of them spreading their wings towards the center of the cover. And the space between the angels' wings is called the mercy seat. The tabernacle is best understood from the inside out, which is why we've been studying it from the inside out. In fact, it's presented to us in Exodus from the inside out. And so we're following that kind of pattern. The most holy place in the innermost, the most westward part of the tabernacle, the most holy place is most properly considered the place of God's special presence. Though, of course, God is present in the whole tabernacle. God is present in the whole camp of the Israelites. And in fact, God is omnipresent in all of creation. But the most holy place is God's special dwelling place. And specifically, the mercy seat is where He appears in the Holy of Holies. The Ten Commandments in the Ark remind us that God is a holy God. And so we can't just approach Him howsoever we please and whensoever we please. In fact, as sinners, we couldn't come at all into His presence if He hadn't made provision for us to do so. Otherwise, He would consume us in His holy wrath. But God instructs us that we may approach Him if our sin is atoned for according to His prescription. We need a substitute to bear the wrath we justly deserve and to carry away our dirtiness 
And these aspects are represented by the goats on the Day of Atonement. So in other words, we need a lamb and we need a priest. And Jesus is these to us. Hebrews 9, 24-26 tell us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So these ceremonies associated with the Old Covenant Tabernacle symbolize that God is willing to condescend to dwell with an unholy people. Provided that the law is not relaxed in order for Him to dwell with them, but rather that the law is answered, justly satisfied in order for Him to dwell with them. And of course, these things prefigured Christ who is the Lamb and the Priest. And so it's not that in Christ God relaxes the law, it's that in Christ God answers the law, justly satisfies the demands of the law, so that God may condescend to dwell with us and unholy people. Now, because of the ceremonies associated with the Day of Atonement, the priests who represent the people of God are welcome to eat with God in His presence. This is the symbolism of the table and the lampstand. And this prefigures for us the welcome that we have in Christ Jesus to fellowship with God spiritually day by day. Eating and drinking of Christ, the bread of life, and the living water. And the invitation that we have to the Lord's table regularly as a foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb and of the feasting of heaven. What rich gospel symbolism there is then in the tabernacle furniture and the rituals of the old covenant tabernacle. But there is not a one-to-one correspondence between the experience of God's people in the age of tabernacle symbolism and in the age of new covenant heavenly realities. Because the experience of God's people in the age of tabernacle symbolism was actually quite limited in comparison with what we experience now in Christ Jesus. Consider that no ordinary Israelite ever entered the holy place. The ordinary Israelite never saw the table laden with bread, nor the lampstand casting light upon it. Perhaps they had a glance at these items when the tabernacle was being disassembled or assembled. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how they did it. But perhaps maybe someone could look from afar and be like, there's the ark. There's the table. There's the lampstand. I don't know. But these things were like lore and legend to them that they would hear about from the priests. In the holy place, there is a table laden with bread where we go and we eat and the lampstand 
casts his light upon the table 24-7. And the ordinary Israelite would have his imagination captured with stories of what was in the holy place and what was in the most holy place. But consider that they never went into the holy place, let alone the most holy place. And so they never saw these things in use. Only the priests could therefore eat and drink in God's presence where there is no night and where God Himself is the light. And consider that the vast majority of the priests themselves never laid eyes on the Ark of the Covenant in its setting in the most holy place. Again, they perhaps saw it briefly when it was... Uh, being transport, being prepared for transport, or when it was being set up in the most holy place. But once the tabernacle was set up, the priests couldn't go in there. So even the vast majority of the priests themselves never saw it in its daily setting. Even the high priests could only go in there once a year. So 364 days of the year, even the high priests couldn't go into the most holy place and see the Ark of the Covenant there. So, even as the priests ate and drank in the holy place, there was an awareness that even their experience, which was privileged over the ordinary Israelite, even their experience was limited. And even they were at arm's length distance from the most proper symbol of God's presence. Namely, the mercy seat, which was behind the curtain in the most holy place. So yes, God dwelt with the Israelites. And yes, God dwelt with the priests. But in another sense, both the common Israelites and the priests were kept at arm's length from God, so to speak, outside the most holy place. Consider this now, which is the big idea of the message tonight, though we've approached it rather slowly and gradually. Consider this. Jesus gives the access of high priests to the ordinary common Christian. As we read in Exodus 26, you may have missed it in passing, but we read about a curtain with cherubim on it, guarding the way into the holy place where the common Israelites couldn't go. And there was a, another curtain with cherubim on it, guarding the way into the most holy place, where even the priests couldn't go. The only other place that we read about cherubim in the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, the writings of Moses, the only other place that we read about the cherubim is in the early chapters of Genesis when cherubim were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were cast out of it, to guard the way back in so that Adam and Eve could not re-enter the garden. Now, Adam and Eve were put out to the east, which means that to go back into the Garden of Eden, they would have had to travel westward. But God placed a barrier of cherubim there so that they could not travel westward into God's presence. The way that they lived in the very presence of God 
prior to the fall. So the holy place and the most holy place figuratively represent the way back into Eden, so to speak. Back into the type of relationship mankind had with God prior to the fall, which was unimpeded by sin. The priestly entry into the most holy place then was a coveted return into the presence of God which fallen mankind since Adam and Eve had not been able to experience. Even the common priests, those other than the high priest, could not experience that coveted re-entry into God's presence. But the ceremonies foreshadowed and prefigured that it's at least possible that a fallen man could re-enter westward into God's presence under the right conditions. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't affect the complete and full return of Adam's posterity into God's presence though, could they? And the Levitical high priest couldn't affect the complete and full return of Adam's posterity into God's presence, could he? Because even after the blood of bulls and goats were offered, It wasn't just a free-for-all to go into the holy place. Even after the Day of Atonement, even the high priest himself couldn't go back in there the next day. So neither the blood of bulls and goats nor the Levitical high priest could effect a complete and full return westward into the presence of God through that threshold guarded by the cherubim. But what happened when Jesus died? I meant to read at the beginning prior to the sermon from Mark also, but that was my oversight. In Mark chapter 15, we read this. Verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As if God's hands reached down to open the way into His presence. The work of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, is superior to the work of these Levitical high priests in that the day after their Day of Atonement, Still, they couldn't go into the most holy place. Not even the high priest himself could go in again the next day, let alone the rest of the people. But the day after the day that our great high priest Jesus did His work, all and sundry were welcomed into the most holy place. There no longer were cherubim placed at the threshold guarding the way for us to move westward into God's presence. They stood aside, as it were, and said, the way is open. After our great high priest did his priestly work. The day after the blood of bulls and goats was spilled year by year, still the Israelites were not allowed into the most holy place. Even the high priest himself could not go in again the day after the blood of bulls and goats was spilled. 
But when Jesus laid down His life as an atoning sacrifice for His people and His blood was shed, the cherubim stood aside. God reached down, as it were, and ripped that curtain from top to bottom so that the ordinary common Christian could proceed westward, back into Eden, so to speak, into the very presence of God. The exile is over. We no longer have to remain outside, but we can come back in because of what our great high priest, because of what our land has done. We may enter westward into the very presence of God, into an Edenic fellowship with God. The cherubim stand aside as we now boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that we are welcome there. We are not trespassers, but we are invited into God's very presence because of what Jesus has done. Jesus gives the access of high priests to the common, ordinary Christian. That's the main idea of our sermon tonight, but I want to augment it with one more, by looking at one more aspect of this idea. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 calls us a kingdom of priests. It says that Jesus has made us a kingdom. Priests to God. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 16, we read this. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. A perfect cube. What does this have to do with our main idea tonight? That Jesus gives us the access of high priests into the most holy place. Though this cube that we read about in Revelation 21, which describes the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, where we will live forever with God, though this cube was an enormous cube, it would be very roughly a couple hundred miles off, but very roughly a cube the length and width and height of which would be approximately the distance from here to Miami. Though it was an enormous cube, it was a cube nonetheless. Now, do you know where the only other cube is in the Bible? You might guess it based on our theme tonight, the most holy place. We're told explicitly in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20 that the most holy place in Solomon's temple was a cube. There is some debate about the dimensions of the most holy place in the tabernacle. 
Theologians are not sure exactly how to read Exodus 26 and to interpret exactly where the frames and the tenons and the bases were placed and in what relation. Some think that the most holy place in the tabernacle was also a cube. Some say it was rectangular. I want to point out two things, though. The author of Revelation is certainly picking up on the most holy place imagery at least from Solomon's temple, where he describes the new Jerusalem as a cube. Because in 1 Kings 6.20, we read that the most holy place in Solomon's temple was a cube. And in Ezekiel chapter 41, the prophet sees a vision of a new temple in the future, which is also going to be a cube. And Revelation brings that to pass, as opposed to Herod's temple. Revelation picks up on that apocalyptic imagery. And the Lord shows John a vision of the new Jerusalem being a cube. So John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is at least picking up the imagery from Solomon's temple and Ezekiel and still indicating to us that the new Jerusalem, the entirety of it, is the most holy place. So it's a bit of a moot point whether the most holy place in the tabernacle was in fact a cube or not. The imagery in Revelation still corresponds with Ezekiel and 1 Kings. Secondly though, it does seem safe to me to assume that Solomon's temple was based on the pattern of the tabernacle. Since the tabernacle was based on the heavenly vision that God gave to Moses on Sinai. After all, we read in Exodus 26 and verse 30, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So if God was so concerned about how the tabernacle was built, and if it was built after a pattern that God showed Moses, it seems safe to me that also when Solomon's temple was built, there were specific instructions and guidance and intended correspondence between Solomon's temple and the tabernacle. So it seems safe to me, and most likely to me, to understand that the most holy place in the tabernacle was in fact a cube also. So that there would be correspondence not just between Solomon's temple and the new Jerusalem, but between the tabernacle first and then Solomon's temple and then Ezekiel's vision and then the new Jerusalem. And it would be consistent all the way through. In any case, even if we just go with the imagery of the most holy place in Solomon's temple being picked up by John in Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the picture of the tabernacle and temple ceremonies is of a holy place and a most holy place guarded by cherubim with restricted access reserved only for the priests and even they themselves are restricted in terms of entering the holy place or pardon me, the most holy place but with the death of Christ we all have the access of high priests into the most holy place and Revelation envisions us all as priests not just visiting but living in the most holy place, eating and drinking with God there. 
So there is continuity in the symbolism. Eating and drinking with God after traveling westward into His presence after experiencing atonement for sin. But there is also development in the symbolism. Our experience is not limited and partial. We don't have a select few of us who are able to go westward into God's presence, but we are kept at arm's length. No, our experience is an experience of full access, unlike those pictures and shadows. And it's as if the table and the lampstand have been moved into the holy place. Without the curtain there, it's all just one big room. So the table and the lampstand are now in the most holy place. And so we eat and we drink in there, as it were, rather than eating and drinking outside of God's special presence. In the book of Revelation, we're envisioned or we're pictured as living in a cube. Living in the most holy place. Eating and drinking with God there. So there's continuity of the imagery, but there's also development of the imagery. That is richer and better than even what was pictured in the tabernacle. Jesus gives the access of high priests in the most holy place to the common ordinary Christian. What a privilege. What a blessing. What a hope. The psalmist's prayer was, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Through Jesus, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, in the most holy place, as it were. And we will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord as we eat and as we drink within there. As we feast within there. 